Malcolm Holmline is with us. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, clearly the biggest story in the Jewish world this week, clearly, and I'm sure you were celebrating on the streets of Tel Aviv or maybe Milan or wherever they were celebrating, the Maccabi Tel Aviv EuroLeague Final Championship victory. Malcolm, I'm sure you've read every word about the accounts of the game and are just relishing in the incredible accomplishment of the State of Israel. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Am I wrong? (laughs) Well, actually, the owners are good friends of mine, and I certainly do (laughs) celebrate the the victory. I can't say I followed it, but I, I knew about it, and I sent them a congratulatory message right away and it but I was speaking to people in Tel Aviv and uh, at night and they were still celebrating in the streets there you go you see that so if anybody ever tells you the Jewish people don't know how to celebrate they never saw Euro League final it's as simple as that <laughs> they're going to replace Simchas Besasheva with the Euro League come on both are fine no replacement necessary we should be celebrating all wonderful accomplishments and great traditions. Uh, so who's going to be the next president of the State of Israel? I see that Dalia Itzik's name is being uh, taken more seriously now than it was a few days ago. Would you say that she's on the short list at this point? Well, the list keeps getting shorter, and she is uh, on the list. Uh, she received the ten, uh, the signatures of ten Knesset members, which is necessary in order to be a candidate. The, uh, the dropping out of Sylvan Shalom, who many could perceive to be a front front runner, uh, was of great interest and speculation about the reason, whether it was because of uh, potential charges or other things that uh, persuaded him not to run or because he wants to be prime minister and thinks this might interfere. Uh, the fact is that the, the field is narrowing. I think Ruby Rivlin, the former speaker, is a front runner, although it's, it's reported that the Netanyahu's uh, don't support his candidacy. Um, then there's uh, uh, Fuad Ben Eliezer and a few and a, a few others, including non-governmental figures. It's it's a vote of the Knesset. It's a secret ballot, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Will Rabbi Lau be a uh, a serious candidate? No. And the serious candidates are out. Uh, they have until I think Monday. So if, if they haven't, the, the fact is the Knesset may look for an outsider as a compromised candidate, somebody that they couldn't, all the parties can unite around without giving and the other side a victory uh, or, or perceived victory. So this is, uh, and, and there is a growing movement saying we don't need a president. It was uh, perhaps at one time, but now it's a very expensive undertaking, and therefore maybe we should uh, reconsider and there were motions like that in the Knesset, but obviously that's not going to happen. Now. Yeah, but you last week basically came out on the side that it's a, a good idea to keep it. That's what it sounded like. I said it serves a purpose in having a unifying figure because of right. the and symbolically nature of Israeli politics. That, uh, but but again, the question is, what is the role, and how far into issues should a president get or not get, and that becomes then contentious each time. So. I'm sure it'll be an issue that will be debated for a while. By the way, from the Sylvan Shalom angle, is it possible to become 
president of Israel without the support of the prime minister? Like, is that even possible, or or you really need prime ministerial support to be, get pushed into that position? You need to have the backing of the prime minister, but it's not. Uh, it's a uh, it's a positive step, but it's not an essential because of the secret ballot and because of the nature of the process. You can win without the backing of the prime minister. Right. Uh, and uh, lastly on this, strategically, a prime minister, I would guess, cares who fills the position. It's an opportunity maybe to get somebody who he thinks might be a political rival to step aside and, you know, be out of the real political arena for a while. Maybe it's a way to uh, to pay back somebody who did the prime minister a tremendous favor at some point. Strategically, it could be any of those things, right? Well, it can work the other way. I think it's usually that they don't want somebody who's going to use that as a platform to challenge the prime minister or the policies of the government. And that has sometimes happened with uh, Shimon Peres, uh, although I think by and large their relationship uh, has been a cooperative uh, one. So there's two things. One is it's a way of rewarding somebody who they want, who they can't give a ministry to or someone out of the way for five years or seven years now. I think it's a one-year, one seven-year term. Or it can be uh, a defensive move not to have someone who will uh, embarrass you or challenge you in the media and, and in, on foreign visits, um, you know, putting the policies of the government up to question or exposure. Why were so many people upset with the uh, Chinese purchase of the majority of Tanuva? Well, anytime you have uh, a company that it provides, uh, and I think it's, it's perhaps the biggest provider of the uh, food to substitute to country, they get concerned when you have foreign control. But I think uh, there's there's less uh, of, of that concern being manifest than you might normally have. It's a $2.5 billion buy-in, but it's, it is controlling interest. But they don't buy the company. They bought just controlling interest, which obviously is important as well. And the company that bought it is uh, a government-backed company in China that has, um, I think it's the second largest uh, food company in in china but you have to see it within what happened in the last few days in china the vice premier i think it's his name was yan dong was there and they signed uh, an agreement to establish number one a 300 million dollar center between tel aviv university and a university in uh, beijing uh the the chief scientists were there, the others who came with him. 350 delegates from China came to participate in the Israel Innovation uh, Conference, and they signed three agreements between Israel and China, many of them very significant, and that Israeli companies will now be part of the innovation parks in China. You have the research center in Israel. The Hebrew University set up a, a Confucius center, and... The, it's it's part of the expanding but rapidly expanding uh, relationship between the two countries, which is obviously of great significance for Israel. Many of the high tech companies already manufacture in uh, in in China. The uh, ramifications of it obviously can be very great. They have the deals that they signed were with uh, one region of China, one of the provinces. Uh, it's, I think it's called Zhejiang. And they have a hundred million people there. It's called the Silicon Valley of Israel, of uh, China, and this is really uh, carries with it obviously economic and technological implications for for Israel. Uh, so, 
uh, deal with the Tanuva is just one of many. There are delegations every week from China visiting Israel and uh, exploring opportunities in every realm. Is there any especially interested in in, in, uh, water reclamation, in agricultural things, in high tech, biotech, uh, biochemical uh, areas? Is there any downside? to this close of a relationship between Israel and China? I don't know what the downside would be. I mean, it's not, I think Israel goes into this with eyes open. You know, the the election in India produced the victory of Mr. Modi as the new prime minister. He was the chief minister of Gujarat, which is uh, uh, one of the major states in India, 60 million people. Uh, And he has established such a unique relationship with Israel. Uh, every year, 2,000 farmers came to Israel from Gujarat. They did a lot in terms of water management. In fact, in 50 cities in Gujarat, Israeli presence in helping to reclaim and, and uh, uh, recycle water, uh, and many, many other areas where he had uh, joint ventures amounting to billions of dollars. And he has become a great friend of Israel. Hmm. And so the ramifications are not just economic, they're political. They build the ties between the countries. And China being a huge market for Israeli goods, Israeli services, Israeli expertise, uh, Israel is still a small country and limited in the region too often. Having these external relations, especially with the largest countries in the world, is vitally important. So follow the layman, me, as I as I then analyze this and say, if in fact China is going to have such economic interest in Israel, that will only continue to grow based on what you're saying, and if they have a tremendous admiration for the technology that's being developed in Israel, and they understand how important that is to them and to the world in general, one might suspect that if Israel is ever, God forbid, in a real conflict, and I'm talking about a military conflict, with any neighbor or any other country, at this point... Maybe China would feel an obligation to either financially or in a different way support the state of Israel. China's traditionally, uh, China traditionally doesn't get involved in, in conflicts that are not of direct interest. I mean, when they want to protect their perceived interests, whether it's islands or uh, uh, their claim to certain islands, whether it's with Japan or with Russia or with others, they are very active in pursuing that. When it comes to foreign involvements, they... they pursue their economic interests. That's why they are working with Iran and back Iran, because they want the energy, and they are so energy-hungry that they will seek to acquire whatever they can. They just signed a huge deal with Russia uh, that will have broader uh, implications, but it also is Russia expanding to the east because of the complications with the sanctions in the west for their actions in the Ukraine. So China tends to be pragmatic, serving its own interests, um, if it's neutralized over some of the issues that Israel faces, especially in the Security Council where China has a veto, that would be beneficial as well. Yeah, but now if someone attacks the Tanuva factory, they're starting up at the Chinese. Absolutely, and I think you should let all of Israel's neighbors know that and and uh, tell them what the potential consequences if any of that cream cheese gets ruined, they're in trouble. Yeah, but it sounds like you're taking the drop seriously, what I'm saying. I mean, if they do start up with places of great interest to China and that have an economic impact on them, they might get more involved than they would have in the circumstances you described. No, I wasn't being facetious, actually. I, I think your point 
is uh, is valid. It doesn't mean that they will go to war for right. Israel. It doesn't mean they're going to send troops. Right. But the more vested interest you have, you know, the, the Chinese tourism is up 30% in the last year. This has also implications for Israel's economy, for Israel's stability, vitality. The more that Israel builds, the more that the, the you know, the, the, the people involved, the brain uh, drain that Israel has suffered could be reversed, and, and these uh, others come and they share. It benefits uh, it benefits both parties, but I, I don't at all dismiss it. I remember when Putin once told me that he told Arafat that if you attack Israel, you're attacking Russia. I right. have one million Russian citizens there. Right. They are my, my people, and if you attack them, you're attacking me. All right. Um, however, the flip side is that Israel is too small, not large enough, to have any real leverage with China when when, when dealing with the Chinese Iranian relationship that you just described, or the Chinese-Russian business relationship that you just described. It's true that uh, Israel is smaller than than China. Somewhat, you know, they used to say that Israel is a is an error in this in the census in China. Right, <laughs> probably represents one block in China, and when he's in Shanghai. Or, or right, the point being, Israel has very little leverage. You because know, most people would think, oh, look at this, look at the position Israel's in. They could influence what China does with Iran or Russia. The reality is, it's just not the case. Yeah, but relative to its size, right, it does have leverage. Right, more than you would think. Relationships and building the relationships also matter in terms of what they will do. You know, in in times of, of real emergency. It doesn't mean that they're not going to sell things or buy things from countries like Iran or do business with the Palestinian Authority if this new government comes into effect. All right. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Malcolm Honline is with us. He is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Yom Yerushalayim is Wednesday. We will speak, of course, next Friday post-Yom Yerushalayim right here at JM and the AM. Why is the Pope's visit this weekend causing such a stir in Israel? Well, whenever a Pope comes, it's uh, of great interest. It's a statement, uh, and what he visits, who he sees, all of that is seen as having implications, the recognition that uh, that. The only Christian population that has grown over the years is the one in Israel. Um, I understand that he's going to visit one of the refugee camps or other places, meeting people that some Israelis uh, have raised uh, concerns about, that people have, uh, one who's threatened to eliminate the state of Israel. Uh, but also in the visit in Israel, I understand that he's going to make some very positive statements. Uh, so. The relationship with a billion Catholics in the world is very important, and the visit is, carries great symbolism. Yeah. Um, he is going directly, traveling directly to what some people refer to as the West Bank, which is unusual, right? It was never done by a pope before. I assume they went through Israel, right, or th- through some Israeli areas in the past. And uh, he is calling, or, or is expected to call, according to the headlines, for a sovereign, independent homeland for the Palestinian people. Is that going further than other popes have done in the past? I don't think it's it's uh, breaking any new ground. I don't think that's the intent of this visit um, to to establish new political lines. Uh, but he doesn't want to leave with a bad feeling from the Israelis, right? He doesn't want he he'd prefer not to, although it may be difficult to leave and not have bad feelings on some side, right? Well, no, I certainly think this is meant to do the opposite. Right. I hope that that will be the, the case. But it might be impossible. 
to go ahead and, well, he's not going to satisfy everybody that we know across the entire political spectrum, but I don't know. I guess we'll talk next week when we see what his quotes are, right? It's a very quick visit. You know, he's going to do one day in Jordan, then he goes to the West Bank to, to Beit Lechem on Sunday, and then Monday he's in Yerushalayim, and uh, I think that, and he's bringing with him uh, his rabbi friend and an imam from uh, Argentina, uh, and many people have traveled from the United States who, who work in, I guess, Christian-Jewish relations and others who, who have best interest in it. Uh, but I hope he'll also recognize that uh, about how other communities there have dealt with the Christian populations, where you see the executions that get very little notice. And, the, the, you know, Christians were 20% of the population in the Middle East a century ago, and today it's about 4%. How do you, and even more so, how does the Conference of Presidents, which has an international influence, uh, deal with a story when you hear that those that that people are saying that it is Jews who are responsible for the Turkish mining disaster? Well, we reacted immediately to the Turkish ambassador and to uh, people in Turkey. It, it is a consistent pattern that we've seen emerge as Erdogan has become crazier and more extreme in his uh, expressions because these things don't just happen it's part of an atmosphere that's been created uh, and it, and it moves on two directions one is that they move towards some sort of reconciliation even though not a full one but you know that trade between the two countries continues to expand regularly and then you have these kind of expressions and and Erdogan and his people in his government are prone to these views and it's uh, it's unacceptable, and I hope that the United States, Western governments, others, will hold him to account. And, and, and another angle, just in terms of uh, human rights, democracy, freedom that we're used to, actually Memorial Day weekend, this is a very good time to talk about it. Uh, what's your reaction when you see that Iran arrests people who make videos? Look, Iran's uh, domestic policies, its human rights record, gets no attention in the international community. They sit on the Human Rights Council and they even were, were vice chairman, were chairman of the Human Rights Council, their activities inside the country have to be the subject of far more attention and response from the West. It is an integral part of the effort to, to change uh, Iran. It's not enough just to focus on the, the uh, rocketry or the, the enrichment process, but what kind of a regime are we talking about? We're talking about where they impose these monastery laws on the women in a very courageous demonstration uh, appeared without the head coverings on Facebook with their faces visible. They're subject to arrest. They will be arrested. But the truth is that that's the real secret weapon against this regime, is the people of Iran. And for too long uh, the Iranian people have been ignored. When they do these demonstrations, there's very little uh, response or or support. Uh, A professor there did a very courageous Thing where he talked about who entrusted Iran with the right to destroy Israel. He asked, "Does the United did the United Nations ask us to do? Did they give you authorization? I mean, why are you wasting all this effort? They see the economic implications of their of the nuclear program. People are paying the price. The government uh, has uh, Khomeini has a ninety five billion dollar enterprise. He's not going to be hurt. You can be sure of that. But the they, they are. We see the sharp increase just in the last week with." Huge amounts of heroin coming out of Iran, being caught in Holland, in Tanzania, in um, in Germany, 
and they found it in carpets in a, in a container that was supposed to have raisins in it. Um, and, and I think it's because the economic situation really has uh, deteriorated. They've even closed their oil offices in Venezuela and Bolivia, which was the vanguard of, of these activities, of their activities, and they, they said that instead they're going to focus their investment at home. But it's because of the economic uh, conditions that, uh, that they find themselves in. But the, but the pursuit of their ideological goals and extremist political goals takes precedence over the needs of the people or anything else. And I think, you know, the West standing up to it and, and the more of a focus that would be put on explaining exactly what kind of regime this is, that the executions have increased under Rouhani, that uh, the supposed uh, uh, moderate. We see all of the deception that's going on in their procurements. The U.N., uh, put out a report this week about uh, how they evade the sanctions. They buy titanium tubes inside steel pipes. They did many other things. And the uh, and while the negotiations are going on, we see the span that the West says they should have 3,000 centrifuges, and they're saying 100,000. Where do they buy it from? From Europe, from others. Uh, you know, people are always ready to sell these Julius technologies, which can be used I mean, the steel piping could be used for other things. Are the Europeans the side of it was the titanium uh, uh, pipe. Are the Europeans in violation of any agreement when they do that? Yes, some companies are, and there have been prosecutions of companies, including American companies, by the way, uh, responsible for shipping some of the, uh, these items. Wow. And also, they're, they're expanding involvement with Hezbollah, continuing with Hezbollah, but, but in Syria, and you see what kind of regime again there you know that the rebels have been destroying ancient mesopotamian sites they have things on youtube where you see a a, a rebel smashing a 3000 year old artifact um, it's like what the taliban in 2001 and and these are guys who are being supplied by more and more sophisticated us weapons division 13 is one of them and you know we were told that they would be vetted we would know who they are and everybody Many people argued you're not going to know who they are really and who they will be and, and who we're dealing with in providing these uh, the weapons. It, it's a dilemma because, on the one hand, you don't want to leave them without weapons. Now we see how they're encroaching on Israel's border. You've got um, uh, 2,000 Nusra troops in, in the Golan area. You have al-Qaeda flags flying from checkpoints. The, the Syrian army disintegrated. That you have... Uh, uh, checkpoints set up where you have the ISIS, the, the, uh, the Levant Islamic uh, State in, in Iraq and Levant, uh, engaged in these activities. And, and we are providing weapons, or the West providing weapons, not knowing where they're really going to end up. Um, Senator Menendez, speaking of Iran, speaking of, uh, Senator Menendez from here in New Jersey, who we praised a couple of weeks back, you'll recall, he's chair of the powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He withdrew the U.S.-Israel Strategic Partnership Act in the panel's agenda after it became apparent that a, a member of the committee was planning to include an amendment on the Iranian nuclear talk. Should President Obama reach a deal with Iran, with Iran and five other world powers to restrain the country's nuclear program, the measure would have forced the president to submit the full plan to Congress Within three days, that would then give Congress the right to hold a vote of disapproval on the final deal and make way for hearings on the matter. Did Menendez make a mistake doing what he did, and how does this affect the way the U.S. is going to deal now with Iran? It does not affect how the U.S. will deal with Iran. Senator Menendez 
did a protective move to to save this legislation for for later. They knew that this was going to become politically divisive. It, there was a lot of pressure from the White House not to have this bill pass in the form. It was because not the bill, but because of the Corker Amendment to it. And uh, um, I think that the legislation will be reintroduced. The Corker Amendment certainly will be reintroduced. Uh, Senator Menendez has been a leader in this fight. He's been a courageous voice in it, and he's uh, at the forefront of the battle to to impose sanctions. They're not altogether free agents when you have when the administration views it in different ways and thinks that their flexibility ability is somehow impeded or, or that Iran will react negatively. Iran reacts negatively to everything that we do, including the the protests and and uh, I think that the legislation anything that it, that enhances the leverage of the United States should be supported by the administration and by the Congress. Right. Well, the pro-Israel community, quote unquote the traditional pro-Israel community in this country was, uh, you know, critical of it. That's why it caught my eye. Um, Bibi, the Prime Minister of Israel, according to the Jerusalem Post, is taking the issue of annexation more seriously now than uh, he did in the past. Uh, is this just uh, public posturing, trying to get a partner back to the table, or do you think he's serious about it? Well, uh, Bennett has been uh, pushing this uh, agenda. I... I don't think that this is uh, really something that he, he is in a position to uh, implement at this time or would. I think it is leverage. You see how the PA and Abbas leverage everything, including this new arrangement with Hamas, which, contrary to what most people are thinking, is actually moving forward and could next week be signed in some form where they establish this technocrat government that will accept the quartet requirements in order to aid, for aid to continue, uh, although it may not, uh, because anything with Hamas in it, and the Hamas leadership even yesterday saying we're never going to give up resistance, we're going to keep violence, we're not going to turn over our missile network to the to the joint operation or to Fatah, the, um, um, uh, the, the Palestinians, you know, have been exploiting all of these options with very little kickback from the West, not certainly commensurate with what it should be, uh, with Hamas, Hamas saying now that they're going to model themselves after Hezbollah, which maintained an independent army, even though it was part of government, had its own its own force, as they still have today, uh, as opposed to the Lebanese army. Um, so, the I think Israel it, it has to take whatever measures are necessary to assure its security and, and protect its its, uh, its citizens. There's been an increase in violence. By the way, violence within the Palestinian society, especially against women. It's called femicide. And uh, violence uh, attacks against the Israelis. I think there were 150 last month incidents uh, in Jerusalem alone. So the, the situation in some places is deteriorated and, and you've seen more violence. And it's, it is exploitation. And in part, it puts pressure because uh, for those who, who, uh, who don't want to see actually Hamas taking over. Was the Prime Minister wrong for not firing Tsippi Livni for her uh, uh, secret meetings with PA leaders? Well, he made his unhappiness well known. He was very angry. I know that the reports are that Lapid did not back him in that decision. But that's an internal political decision. You know, he has to weigh many considerations. There are people who are talking now increasingly about early election, meaning in, before the end of 2015, as opposed to 2016. 
so, or it could even be earlier, but I don't see the incentive because I don't think anybody's going to benefit that much from it uh, in a shakeup that would come with a, an election. So it's very similar to last time around that the that the it's always similar that the guarantee the guarantee of winning another term is to go to early elections, or because the situation becomes untenable because. And you told us he wouldn't run for another term. Who you said Bibi wouldn't run for another term? Never said a thing. Like I think he did. Yeah. I think I think you With said one of your other guests. I think you conjectured that that would be his last term when he won the election. But this is what he's doing. He's in a position. You have the tape, so I can't <laughs> deny it. But he's... I don't think I ever said it because I think. Bibi... No, but by the way, I'm not. T- I'm not saying Bibi's not getting tired. I think. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. A, turn it over. I'm not accusing you of anything. I think in your <laughs> in, in your analysis, I, you I, conjectured that it would be his last term. But now it's interesting. Just like last time, if he goes to early elections, the likelihood is he could win one more go around. I think he is the front runner, but if you look at some of the alignments that they're talking about, when you strip uh, Likud of uh, of Lieberman's party, uh, they are twenty, and other parties could could coalesce. Right. And there's even talk of Livni going to some other party. I don't think that that is a major change. But uh, what prompts a member leadership? What prompts a member of the Israeli government to go have clandestine talks with the with the PA against the government's wishes, that make headlines. Well, first of all, she is very committed to to moving the process forward. She uh, had the opportunity to meet with Mr. Kerry as well, and I'm sure in her mind she was doing something to keep the channels of communications open. Making a noble effort. But I think that in in other governments uh, she might have been fired when you go against the uh, will and the policy of the head of state. Uh, and especially as it purported, again, I don't know if it's true that, that he asked that they not, that she not do it, specifically instruct her not to do it, or did not know and only found out after he arrived back from China that she actually had gone ahead and held the meeting when, you know, Abbas's behavior and his, uh, his rejection of the process and his um, shifting the onus constantly uh, onto Israel and now negotiating with Hamas, that's why I think it's particularly sensitive, viewed in that side. On the other hand, you can say that look, somebody wants to, somebody has to keep the channel open yeah. forever. To then maybe he got angry, and that was just a publicity stunt. I don't think it was a publicity stunt. I think when, when, uh, according to the reports, at least that uh, when other members of his, uh, when Lapid in particular said that they would pull out, this could jeopardize the coalition. I think he. And finally, the UN will never move forward in getting Syria in front of the International Criminal Court. Not as long as uh, as Russia and China and others can exercise a veto over it, and uh, they are backing them. They're continuing to provide more and more support uh, to to uh, the Syrian situation. You've seen how much it has deteriorated with the killings uh, expanding, the numbers. They said 10,000 people killed just in the last, I think, two months. Right. Uh, the the use of the chemical of the chlorine gas, um, the the increasing attention, by the way, to an issue we've raised here for a long time about the the um, uh, foreign fighters and how countries are beginning to to try and look at how do you trace them, how do you deal with it, how do you anticipate that these trained killers are coming back in large numbers to Europe and, and to the United States. France this week admitted that they had 300 in the country that they knew of and 130 on the way and 130 already back. And the fear about what 
what it represents. They, they arrested a group of them uh, just this past week. So this this is a, a, an issue that is, um, uh, you know, that the, the fighting is not contained within the borders of Syria anymore, that this is spreading all the time, and the implications both for Lebanon, for Jordan, which is of great concern. There's a new group there called the Zimzam, which broke with the Muslim Brotherhood to try and come up with a more modest and, and moderate policy, but at the same time, we see the sharp increase in weapons coming into there from, from Syria into Jordan. Kalishnikovs went from $2,000 to $500, which tells you how, mu- how many weapons are uh, crossing the border in these convoys. The, um, and the Sunni Islamists are, are helping to finance and, and backing this. And then there are regions, in southern regions, uh, where you see breakdown of security and the, the, the uh, delicacy of the role of the King of Jordan and his position is a great concern to Israel, to the United States, to, to others, um, and especially given all of the other changes, specifically Iraq, uh, this, the stability of the Jordanian regime is a critical priority. Make sure that, uh, well, I don't know if to tell you this, I'm sure you'll do it, but everyone out there should make sure to tell their children and grandchildren this Shabbos what life was like without a, a unified city of Jerusalem. It was just 1967, Malcolm, that all this occurred, this amazing miracle. And people should not take it for granted. People, absolutely, what you just said is vital, that they talk to them. You know, we have this campaign for Harris 18 uh, and trying to raise some money now to enhance the security, to make sure people have it available. A place where 150,000 Jews, where Menachem Begin, where Great Gedolim, where, where and I, I said in, in a speech there, if you had a city with 150,000 Jews that were in danger, let alone with that, all of these great names who, of Jewish history, of Jewish uh, uh, religious leadership, what would we do? We would do everything. And here we have a place, and it is in jeopardy. And the government has taken important steps, putting up cameras. It's, it is uh, vitally different, especially since the committee was started. Uh, but I think, and, and the Lubinsky brothers are leading it, and the many others being involved, uh, and we've had community events. But but it's part of the whole thing that we take Jerusalem for granted. We don't think about the implications, and and when we see the destructions of the place, uh, and I, I must make one comment here about Hamodia's magazine to thank them for the wonderful article they did about the book, the history of all the shuls destroyed on Kristallnacht, Pogromnacht, as we call it. Um, but it's a reminder also that people forget the history, and we write it off to our peril, because then it only comes back and gets repeated. No question about it. And then with that, we say, learn how to celebrate everybody and enjoy Yom Yerushalayim and all the other great events, even the Maccabi Tel Aviv victory. Uh, Malcolm, have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak Bezrat Hashem next week. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Friday morning on this Erev Shabbos, Parshas Bamidbar,